Welcome to the Let's Talk Value podcast series. It's our fifth season, imagine or not, in uh, this fall 2023. And I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Matt Lesniak today to the podium. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate your time and interest in hearing what I have to say. <laughs> yes. And Matt is such an accomplished clinician scientist. I We would spend 20 minutes with the introductions. So I leave it to, um, I think everybody's pretty much on LinkedIn who's watching this. So I think there's extensive pedigree here. But I mean, needless to say, and this is what we really want to focus today. Today, Dr. Lesniak is the chairman of a, a large department in the United States, uh, we can say of neurosurgery, so you're a neurosurgeon, but you're also an accomplished scientist. And also, I think with all of this very uh, patient-centric and outcome-centric and team-focused. And I have to say, thank you, Matt. Also, you have been a supporter of the book, It Takes Five to Tango, and my entire enterprise running 5P Healthcare Solutions. So I'm really, it's kind of overdue that we have this conversation. And I want to kick us off really with one of the main intersections that I think are in your day jobs is between the clinics and the researchers. Yes. Or let's say not the people, but the science and the, clinic, the clinics with the patients. So really eager to hear some of your experiences, like what is maybe some of the fundamental core problems to overcome and then how do you kind of manage that with your yeah well again like I said thank you so much for for having me I I appreciate the opportunity to be here I appreciate our friendship and and your interest in in maybe my thoughts on the matter um so as you've said it so happens that I got this job where I get to uh, if you will help to steer uh, this big ship of ours uh, in a different direction uh, but my job entails both managing the scientific enterprise as well as the clinical. And it's a little bit unusual in the surgical fields, especially in neurosurgery, where I think that in your language, the value is for surgeons to be like airplanes flying or for us to be in the OR, right? So when you have these uh, high-priced uh, pieces of equipment, the idea, at least in the United States, is for people to be productive and Production too often, even in academic medicine, means that surgeons should be in the operating room and, and working and operating um, because that's where the incentives lie. <clears throat> so it's unusual to have an institution such as Northwestern, which I give a tremendous credit to for helping to support in a thoughtful way uh, the vision that surgeons can contribute beyond just being operators in the room. And that takes leadership. It takes leadership both at the hospital level and I think as well as the university level because there's nothing that I could do in a vacuum without the support of people above me that I report to who basically understand the value and understand the significance and appreciate the fact that we can contribute to something beyond just uh, the operating room. <clears throat> I think over the years, you know, what I have found out is that at least in the surgical fields, there are three groups of people in a department, right? And, and, and as I look at our department, there are those people who are just surgeons and uh, they operate. They love to operate. They love to see patients. And that's all they do. On the other spectrum is we have a lot of basic scientists, so people who just have a PhD and are not necessarily with a clinical background of taking care of patients. Uh, and they're focused most on the science, the understanding of the basic science, the mechanisms and the and, and the sort of ways of advancing this to the clinic. And then there's the hybrid of people in between, the, the physician scientists who spend their time both in the lab and in the clinic. 
And like anything in life, when you have three different groups that come from different backgrounds, uh, I often feel like you have to use three different languages to speak to them because it's not it's not really similar. And maybe one example that I often can use, you know, uh, at, at Northwestern, where I go to meetings with my supervisors or other chairs, there's almost this expectation that I have to wear a suit and I have to have to ever wear a suit and a tie. And I remember one time I went from one of those meetings and I went to a lab meeting where everyone was there and they thought, oh my God, is he going to fire everybody or what is happening? So so e even, the, even the subtleties of how you dress to interact with people can provoke anxiety. Uh, and so you feel a little bit, a little schizophrenic because on a day like today where I'm going to do more research in the lab, I tend to be more casual. So when I go there, they can relate to me uh, and, and not really, you know, be fearful that, oh, my God, some suit here is coming from uh, administration versus when I meet with other people, there's an expectation of maybe a little bit more professionalism. So you always have to adjust sort of both the external way you appear as well as the internal language that you use with people uh, to try to make, first of all, them feel comfortable in your presence. And if they do, they're more willing to listen, I think, to the ideas and the concepts that you're trying to sell. Uh, so to me, the biggest differences in an academic department like here are just you have different groups of people, right? Uh, and they come from different backgrounds. And then on top of it, you introduce diversity, whether it's the fact that we have people from many parts of the world, many different religions, many different cultures. It's wonderful. At the same time, there's always an opportunity when you have this much differences to be a little bit of a, of a problem or a strife because those people are put in one place. And it takes some time to adjust and appreciate how others think. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I think we spend a lot of time on doing social events and social things so that I think people from different backgrounds can get to know each other. I often think it's easier to solve problems with people that you know and care about versus somebody who is abstract and you can just dismiss almost like, well, you know, I, I can't relate to this human being, so it's whatever. Yeah, so I think it's fabulous, and, uh, and uh, there's many great points, I think, also for our audience to take away. So the first thing I heard, really, I mean, the administration support also. There are certain things that need to come top down. Obviously, then you grow it bottom up, you know, through your people. But I think without that support that you mentioned very well in the opening is so important. And then I think, as you say, you're different groups, and you have to speak those different languages. I love it, as you say, and also in the non verbal and this is what we work a lot with our tango coaches like you know yes. all your body language and your signals and your you know um, standards that you send and I think it's our responsibility as leaders to go towards the way of of the people and not the other way around and I think the the important piece of the relationship and the the social interaction is I think we forget that at the end of the day people want to relate to you right especially if you're in some kind of a position that they view as a position of, of leadership so they want to be close to you. And, and the more you can sort of make it, I think, humane, the more you can make it normal, the more you can actually even share your faults and the fact that none of us is perfect, right? I mean, I make mistakes. I'm sure you make mistakes. We all do. You have to own it and process it. And I think that people can relate to that. Uh, it's not that you're always right and perfect and, and things are always going the way you want it to go. Thank you. You're as as if you would be a very experienced podcaster. You just gave me the golden bridge to the next topic in terms of maybe. Sure. 
So as you know, one of the, the themes that I burn for and that I wrote my book about and that I do in my consulting is the transformation towards value-based healthcare. You already mentioned value, but what we mean by that is really the focus on outcomes, you know, and some of the connotations is quality in the work or how we measure work. So if we just for a minute or a moment, several minutes shift to really your one of your groups, the surgeons, the clinicians, and that could be surgery, but it could be really any clinician working on patient outcomes directly in the care delivery. You, I heard sometime, at some point you speak about a culture that you're nurturing in your department around that somebody called what some people call no blame culture mm -hmm. kind of work because you mentioned this element of mistake and the reason why I would be really eager and I think our audience to hear from you because in one of my recent podcasts that I was invited to somebody interviewed me and said how do I get the physicians in that hospital to join you know all this transformation because they're so afraid of making mistakes and being blamed for it in public so maybe you can and obviously this is not a overnight quick thing yeah stall this is a long haul work with a lot of resilience so maybe you want to share some of your thoughts and experiences around yeah this. so i i think you know you you bring up a very important topic and th there isn't an easy solution to it because as human beings i think we're always fearful of being judged right you're whether it's a in your own relationship with somebody you're dating or or married to or or your parents or and it starts very early. So we're almost programmed to the fact that we're going to be judged. And whether it's through grades in school or through relationships or, or anything else. So this lingo of no blame culture, you know, sounds good, but it's actually a little bit difficult to achieve because I think we're programmed to think that if we share something, especially what can be perceived as weakness, we're ultimately going to be punished for that. Um and I don't know whether I have the answer to this, to be quite honest, but but I think it's very important for people to feel comfortable enough to share. And that takes time. And it's not something that happens overnight. They, they have to, I think, realize that in the social context and in social gatherings and even in simple things like these morbidity and mortality conferences, that they can openly discuss things. Uh, and that it's not there to make them get a mixed audience on, on what just is in a quick. Yeah. So, for instance, in, in medicine, we, we have something called a monthly morbidity and mortality conference. It's where it's a privileged conference where we tend to discuss things that, you know, didn't go well. Uh, complications from surgery. Uh, and, so it's and just as a footnote means, you know, no broadcasting, no recording. Exactly. You know, exactly. It's something that allows us in a in a safe room, if you will, to have an open discussion so that we can learn from it, right? Uh, and as I always say, you know, th these things can happen to anyone. All of us, if we're in any job, will make a mistake. I mean, unless you're a robot, I don't see how it's possible not to. It's a degree of these mistakes that I think carry consequences, especially in patient care. So some things may, may be minor, some things could be major. Um I think to me, you know, the big problem is not so much about making those mistakes, which happen to everyone, as when people take it to a different degree and start covering it up. So I always say it's it's one thing to make a mistake. You can make the worst possible mistake in the world, but I think you have to be honest with yourself first that you made it. And then the next is the patient you're taking care of. You have to, even if it's the worst thing that happened, 
You have to sit down with that patient and the family and explain it to them. You, you have to make the organization and, and the people above you aware that something serious is happening because they're also the face of the institution and made it aware of. So I think th those are things that in a, in a culture of people who understand the importance of this and who nurture safety can happen. The problem is when people feel like now they have to do a cover-up and start changing things, medical records and stuff, which occasionally can happen, which I think is totally unacceptable because that goes to ethics and professionalism and everything else. So the because that those conferences are monthly in your yeah. case. So yeah. I think the reason why we ask this from a value-based healthcare perspective is not so much like you know misconduct or, or things like this. It's more that the transparency component. Yes. So you know, those departments really that want to achieve high volume, and you spoke about high technical standards, you know, there's expensive equipment, etc. To really make it public for every single surgeon, every single patient, you know, what the results are in terms of short-term complications, 30 days, and midterm complications, and whatever typical complications in the disease field that, this, that the department is working in. And I think this is often where there is very natural resistance, as you really nicely said, fear of being judged. And maybe even sometimes, you know, fear of losing your job. You know, if of course. my statistics last month, I had 10%, whatever, urinary infections, and I shouldn't be, you know, having those. But I think what you're really saying very nicely is to create that safe space. Yeah. And you have to learn. I mean, you know, if you look at the airline industry, which oftentimes is compared to medicine, I'm not sure it's actually correct. But if you look at airline crashes, right, there is a very thorough investigation that goes to understanding whether this is an a crew error and pilot error whether this is actually an equipment or a manufacturer and they spend months and then they identify things that can be improved to either the, the structure of the plane or or certain pathways that pilots follow so we, we try to do the same thing i think with these morbidity conferences you know is there something systemic that we can address if we see a rise in infections that are post-operative you know we sort of go back now to central processing sterility uh, the pathway that the equipment goes from the sterility room up to the or to see if there is a breakdown somewhere and that allows you to fix it and, and improve these things and so some things we can control right but there is an element to just human error and Sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes just bad things happen when people have surgery because, you know, if you're 80 years old and you're after two kidney transplants and you have heart failure and, uh, you know, you just had three stents put in and now you're undergoing a surgery because there's no other choice, that can cause a problem. But I think what's really interesting that you're saying, and maybe also for our audience who's less accustomed to this, is really that search for patterns. So yeah. it's really not the you dr smith have committed whatever or the patient has done bad but it's like in the hundred patients of the entire department you know if it's one or two percent it's always bad for the individual but i think here what we're talking about is pattern detection and how can we as a group you know for the 80 20 rule or the 90 10 right. you know get better for those 80 90 95 percent of cases it's the low-hanging fruit right it's identifying exactly like you said those patterns of what are the issues systemically that are contributing to this? But that doesn't work without the individual being disclosed. And I think this is where right. sometimes for institutions that haven't done that traditionally and that want to embark on this new, there we, and you know, this is 
could say, well, that keeps me in business, but you know, that's for consultants, we see how, how to overcome resistance. And this is why we're, we're so grateful for people like yourselves to, you know, also be, you know, um, uh, speaking up and come to the podium and speak about this, that this is things you're doing and that they're just normal because everybody in the room will share. There's, yeah. as you said, there's not, not even the chairman is exempt, right? Everybody Absolutely. in the room. Absolutely. I think this is then maybe helping with the trust building. And I think, I think you know, as physicians, we, we all hold ourselves to very high standards, right? We 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 want to do the best thing for the patients. We, we don't want to look bad in front of our colleagues. We want to make sure that everyone knows we've done the best we can. And uh, I think sometimes that is counterbalanced by the fact that if you just tell yourself that too much, you're afraid of looking bad too, right? Because you then have to accept, well, you know what, maybe I screwed up this time. Maybe I'm human. Maybe some of it is me. Maybe some of it is the hospital or systemic. But but you have to have that conversation and be honest with yourself in order to establish trust, right? Trust in the group, uh, trust in the institution. And that sort of percolates through society that, you know, we, we all tend to be more engaged with institutions and groups that we think are more thoughtful about the process. It's not... None of us really expect anybody to be perfect, uh, but we expect them to sort of undergo an honest process of self-reflection. And I think that creates trust. Excellent. That's almost a nice closing because believe it or not, we're already at 20 minutes. <laughs> but um, so I think thank you for those really snippets of uh, sharing from your reality. I think it's really valuable in itself. Any last message you want to leave the audience with um, before we close for today? Um, well, that, that's, a, that's a big statement, right? <laughs> and I don't know whether I'm in a position to do it. I would just say that, you know, um, at least here at Northwestern, I can't speak for everybody and, and for our department of neurosurgery. One of the things that I really enjoy is really that culture that goes from the top down of people being thoughtful, people having conversations, people trying to be better, realizing that we're not perfect and sometimes we make mistakes, but we're honest about it and we're going to do better. And I think that's how you establish, like we said, trust and and uh, sort of interdependence as human beings in the process that we will do what we need to do to, to achieve the highest possible goals we can. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Lesnia. <laughs> Appreciate it.